Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to butt into it while we talk technology, computing, the internet, uh, all of the stuff that uh, we're excited to be sharing with you on a Wednesday night. Um, and this evening on the desk, we do have uh, Ro Murray. Ro, how are you? I'm pretty good. Yeah. Have you had a, a good week in technology? Middling? I've had a really enlightening week in technology. I'm oh. doing Nano Remo, which is a National Novel Writing Month, which means um, you've got to write 50,000 words in 30 days for November. So it means I've been uninstalling many apps on my phone. So all the fun stuff like TikTok is gone for now mm. till I get to the end of the month. So yeah, my, my tech life is looking pretty bleak. Have you have you done anything like that before? 50,000 words in a month? No, I haven't. I've mm. attempted NaNoWriMo before and I got up to about 25,000 words before I sort of ran yeah. out of puff. So quite determined to give it a burn mm. this month. So so far, so good. That's good. I can't wait to hear how you go. Um, <laughs> I'll be with you also on the show tonight on Warren Davies. Uh, tonight on the show, uh, fintech is something we seem to be doing pretty well at in Australia. Um, and one of our uh, three tech unicorns, a, a billion-dollar privately held company, is one such company, uh, Airwallex, uh, are making it easier for business of all sizes to transact across borders uh, without losing uh, all of their coin in the process. Um, so it's an interesting space to be in. Um, and if we're going to be, a, I guess, a competitive marketplace, we have to do that well. Um, and they're local. So we just thought, come in and say hello. That sounds interesting. Um, also on the show, the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, recently announced they are going toe-to-toe with Google uh, for misleading Australians over its collection and use of personal location data. Uh, University of New South Wales Senior Lecturer uh, in the Faculty of Law, Dr Catherine Kemp, will join us uh, a little bit later in the show to discuss that and uh, I guess look at the two corners for that uh, upcoming duel. But um, before then, there's uh, a bit of news out there. Um, it's actually been a bumper week in, uh, in tech news so far. One of the big ones um, is a rebrand of Facebook or shouty capital Facebook now, <laughs> Rowena. What's, what's that about? Oh, gosh. So Facebook has officially announced what they're calling a rebrand. And essentially, it's from a look and feel standpoint, it is Facebook, but in all caps. And mm. of course, you can make all of the OK Boomer jokes you like about that, um, obviously, because Facebook is... Um, you know, its fastest growing demographic is actually the boomer demographic and that's who its users are. Um, you know, naturally the wild old interwebs have been having a marvellous time bagging out the look and feel of the brand. But when you dig a little bit deeper, um, it's it's really about um, restructuring how, um, you know, Facebook has obviously been buying up some very well-known brands like Instagram and WhatsApp and all the rest of it. And, um you know, Zuckerberg has been getting under more and more scrutiny because it's just such a massive juggernaut and, you know, life in Facebook land is a little bit out of control. So this rebrand is actually an attempt to make clear their ownership in in another attempt to make it harder to break the company up. So mm. it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, uh, Google went through this um, mm. uh, with Alphabet um, a couple of years ago, eight, 18 months ago perhaps, and uh, it makes sense. You know, the app is not the company, is not the people you have issue with, so mm. um, just keep things separate. You know, if you want to clean us out, here's a small pop, small pile of cash over here exactly. that you can take <laughs> called Facebook with a capital capitals. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's um, the, the brand itself is not 
particularly inspiring. Um, no. a, a lot of uh, I, I don't know. I'm kind of deep in looking at this at the moment. A lot of a lot of technology brands are, are kind of like small uh, in terms of ideas and um, and design. But um, I don't know. I, I think from a, a business point of view, it makes sense. They they should have done it a while ago. Yeah, it, it absolutely does make a lot of sense. And it's just going to depend. It's going to be interesting to watch. Um, you know, particularly Instagram users have been seeing uh, so much more of the sort of Facebook behaviours coming into the app in terms of um, you know nudity guidelines and. you know Mm. all of those kind of things and reporting guidelines and things and um, Instagram is getting more and more Facebook-esque and it's going to be very interesting to see whether like structurally they do things right Mm. so to speak um, but whether from a philosophical standpoint they continue to maintain that separation Mm. be an interesting one to watch yeah I think it was maybe I don't know mid last year first half of last year um, they started testing the waters about how about if it was just all the same back end and we'll just put a different front door on it so Mm. all of the services are effectively the same thing but um, it's just a matter of kind of what interface you want to play with exactly which for them makes a lot of sense but it's crazy for us because we all have like strong preferences for what we use and how we use this stuff and yeah 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 interesting it's going to be interesting yeah Another behemoth that's in trouble is uh, Uber. What's <laughs> what's going on there? Oh, good old Uber. Um, Uber, it's it's quarterly reporting time in um, a, lo- a lot of quarters of the world, particularly mm. the USA and Japan and what have you. And um, Uber, frankly, just continues to hemorrhage cash. So um, in the quarterly results posted on Monday, Uber has reported a net loss of roughly US $1.2 billion, which is um, around $2 billion in Australia dues. Mm. Um, um, and a lot of those losses are actually attributed to heavy, heavy investment in Uber Eats. So it's a little bit less about ride sharing and more about their expansion and their marketing. And this $1.2 billion loss was actually slightly less than a few um, you know, forecasts thought was going to be. But where it gets a little bit interesting is that Uber is also on the precipice of what's called an IPO lockup period. So mm. what that essentially means is um, <clears throat> when a, um, a big company goes to IPO, initial public offering, and hits the stock exchange, um, people who get preferential shares, um, which can be you know, founders and executives, and staff and what have you, um, as well as certain institutional investors, they usually have what is a lock-up period, which is designed to stop um, rapid trading in the first days and weeks of an IPO and, you know, bring the stability that's needed. Um, So Uber is about to close its lock-up period, which expires this week, and it means that um, it's possible that over 80% of the company's shares will become eligible to hit the market for the very first time. So um, that's going to be everyone from staff to founders to institutional investors and Interestingly, um, this week as well, SoftBank, which is an absolutely massive, massive Uber backer based in Japan, just took a massive thumpering over their investments in Uber and WeWork and could be pressured to sell their stock, mm. which is a humongous stake. I think it's over $4 billion US dollars. So, oh, <laughs> it's interesting times. <laughs> Is interesting. I do remember someone saying, um, "Never mind uh, the, the the hit SoftBank took on WeWork. They'll make it up in TikTok." And people were kind of like, mm, "I'm not really sure about that." Yeah, that's you know, and, t- and TikTok's got its challenges as well. It does. Yeah, um, we might talk about that a little bit later. Yes. Um, I was really interested to see um, how uh, Microsoft are doing with an initiative to um, work with shorter weeks um, at the company. The Japan offices of Microsoft uh, uh, trying out um, four day weeks and. 
results are interesting. Um, uh, productivity is up um, around 20% or I guess once you figure it out roughly, people are doing the, the same amount of work in, in the four days. But uh, in August, they introduced the Work-Life Choice Challenge um, and the Turkey offices uh, closed every Friday um, and the company also uh, encouraged people to limit meetings to uh, 30 minutes or less, um, which is a good idea, I think, um, and also encouraged people to hold uh, remote group discussions on the internal chat app, uh, of, of which they have, obviously. Yeah. Um, and during the month of the three-day weekends, workers got um, got their regular paycheck. So it's you know effectively the same, which is... Which is good. Um, so it's been gaining a bit of momentum. Uh, would you? How do you feel about working four days and getting paid the same? And what do you think it means? Yeah, I, look, I, I personally think it's a fantastic idea. I, I really do feel that there's been, um, you know, so much cultural pressure to go hustle, work the big hours, and all the rest of it. Yeah. And it's it's really detrimental to health and well being, and also creativity. Mm. You know, we all know that we can't go hammer and tongs for twelve or fourteen hours a day, mm. and that our productivity is going to stay, um, you know, <clears throat> up. I guess it's just going to be interesting to see how, um, you know, how companies do adopt it, whether it means people are working longer hours on that day mm. you know whether it changes job design a little bit reduces people's kpis will it have mm. an impact on bonuses all of that kind of stuff but if it means that people are working fewer hours a week and they're working more productively more efficiently mm. having less meetings yay yeah um, i think it could be a really good thing i'd love to see it happen Interesting. I think, um, yeah, I did, I did read something uh, last week about um, Keynes made a prediction, John Maynard Keynes made a prediction that by 2030, I think he said, mm-hmm. um, we'll be able to produce what we need today in 1930 um, in around 15% of the time that we currently spend or sort of you know, a day a week or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and we passed that in 2008. Yep. So, um, yeah, we are able to make what we need with a lot less time than we used to. So, mm. um, yeah, I think four-day weeks are great. Yeah, well, it's a, it's also an interesting one because, you know, we, we deal with so many technological changes that are designed to make us work faster, smarter, more yeah. efficiently and all the rest of it. Um, and we but just there's do never more, really been a payoff. You know? yeah. um, there's never <laughs> been that payoff. So, you know, we've all got Slack and Discord and, you know, online you know documents in the mm. cloud and accessible for any, from anywhere and all the rest of it and mm. there's, there's really no reason why we shouldn't actually be making those decisions to work differently and have better quality of life mm. what's um what's going on in india uh, there's been a high court decision um which which has some implications for um, a lot of the platforms yeah absolutely mm. so this is going to um impact facebook twitter and google um india's high court of delhi has um you know, made a, a pretty big announcement. Basically, they've granted an order requiring Facebook, Twitter and Google to remove certain content globally based on that content being defamatory under local law in India. Um, wow. It's an interesting one. It sets a very fascinating precedent because obviously Australia has some of the gnarliest defa- defamation laws in the world. Mm. Um and this is, you know, one of the first times that um, a, a federal court has basically turned around and said global platforms are actually going to be liable for what happens locally mm-hmm. um, and, and we'll need to physically act on it. And it's it's very interesting that we're seeing um, more and more and more, um, and we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit later in the show, but uh, more localised lawsuits and legal decisions that are impacting what were thought to be semi-untouchable 
huge platforms. Mm. So it's it's interesting times. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if um, a, a few um, test cases can uh, hold these large platforms accountable. And mm. um, I don't know. I'm not going to say it's all good. I'd like to think that can be done. But um, what does that mean for um, having a platform that needs to work for 220-odd countries um, and then dealing with 220-odd different sets of laws around what they can and can't publish? Absolutely. And, of course, there's massive free speech implications around that mm. as well. So... Yeah. Mm. Speaking of free speech, um, uh, TikTok, um, the uh, sort of ephemeral um, uh, video dance karaoke singing app of awesomeness. Yeah, of awesomeness. <laughs> that's that's my official pitch for it. Um, um, has had some interesting conversations around, um, I guess, uh, lost in translation um, content where um, uh, moderators of the content in the States uh, have suggested that um, final sign-off for a lot of the content, um, things that we're quite comfortable with uh, most of the time in the West, um, kissing, um, sort of, you know, softly sexual content, um, uh, some other things, uh, a struggle for um, the platform to sign off because ultimately moderation is done um, to Chinese standards or, in fact, in um, China. China. Um, the app is uh, owned by the Chinese tech giant ByteDance, which I think is also now getting into um, phone creation and, and a lot of things now. Mm, so, yep, they're absolutely huge. It'd be interesting. There has been a, a, a bit of conversation about how it might be a, a security risk, but um, uh, at, you know. I don't know. I think in this case, um, it is interesting. I'd actually like to see China having a go at uh, moderating uh, content in the West. I think it's actually probably a good thing for Chinese culture to kind of go, actually, this is the kind of content that, you know, that the open web is encouraging. Yeah. Um, and I think if they can get most of it through, it's probably a, a good outcome uh, rather than, you know, we lose a, a few kind of, um, you know, um, dick pics and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 to be honest, I wouldn't be sad at, you know, <laughs> fewer, fewer of that unsolicited garbage. I mean, there are apps out there for that, you know, have mm. at it. Mm. Um, yeah, it's and it's one of those situations as well. TikTok is one of the first... I mean, obviously China has massive platforms like yeah. Weibo and what have you. Mm. This is one of the first platforms that has gone truly, truly global with a mm. really huge Western audience and... It is a Chinese company. They are absolutely, they can do whatever they want in terms of moderation um, mm. and they can absolutely apply Chinese rules. And it's one of the first times that Western audiences are, are dealing with, uh, you know, a somewhat stricter approach to this. So mm. it's, it's probably an eye-opener for both sides of the fence. Triple R. And we're back. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R with Warren and Rowena and... Fintech is something that Melbourne and uh, grudgingly Sydney and a few other places in the country, but we don't need to talk about them, are doing an okay job of. Um, so I've kind of got one into the ground on this and um, what we're doing well at. Um, I did come across uh, a group of people called Airwallex, and we're now joined in studio by Craig Rees, who's the VP and Head of Engineering. Um, and it's been doing this for a little while, um, started back uh, around 2000 in, in product delivery and um, it's worked with some places including BBC, Telstra, Atlassian, Vodafone, um, Boston Consulting Group, um, but he is now back in his hoodie and um, back on the safe territory of product development. Um, joins us now, Craig, thanks for coming in. Thanks a lot. Um, 
what I'm, I'm interested here. There's some there's some big stats about um, how our sort of you know one of our three unicorns are, are moving a lot of money around. Um, te- you know, moving into the tens of billions um, pretty soon. What what aside from getting a good deal, what are businesses most concerned about when it comes to moving their money around? I think at the moment the biggest problem is just the barrier. You know, we talk about this global economy, but actually, if you want to do business outside of your own country, it's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, I can set up a, a shop front on Amazon or eBay, get customers in the US paying in US dollars, but as soon as I want to convert that back into Aussie dollars to actually take the funds back. I can either spend six months setting up a bank account in the US or I can get hit with conversion fees. It's really difficult, much more difficult than you expect in, what are we, 2019 now, when we're all talking about global organisations and global business. Yeah. And, and how did we used to solve this? What, what has traditionally been the way to do it? Well, either you spend lots of money, so you look at you know the big global organizations, the, the, the Nikes, the Apples of this world, who have huge teams and huge investment in setting up bank accounts, finance teams around the world. Um, or to be honest, if you look even 10 years ago, we probably did most of our business in the same country. So it's really only been in the past three, four, five years where we've suddenly seen this um, huge growth in uh, customers, outside of your own country or even paying suppliers to get um, manufacturing done in different countries. So I think it's it's more of a newish problem. And right now, the only way of solving it is basically, you know, out of your wallet, paying cash. Hmm. And if I was, uh, I don't know, if I was a shoe company, like you just mentioned one, and I did was doing a lot of business somewhere else, why, why would I use Airwallex? What's the, the sort of great IP that you guys have? Yeah, well, Couple of things. Um, one is um, the rates that we charge. So right now, if you're uh, using an organisation who's converting those funds straight away, maybe using a bank, you're probably paying in the region of three to four percent on that conversion. Mm. Whereas we're down at the um, you know, half a percentage point. So first of all, you've got price. Second, you've got innovation. Um, most of international flow goes over the SWIFT network. That technology has been around for a pretty long time. Um, what we do is we set up banking arrangements with all of the local providers so we can make the most of any innovation that's happening in a local market like MPP um, within Australia. Um, and by doing that, what we try and do is create a little bit of transparency in the payment flow. So from a consumer's perspective, you can understand what's going on, where is that payment, and how quickly is it going to get to um, to the people you're paying your customers, or if it's coming to you because you're going to get from your customers, how quickly it'll end up in your bank account. It's interesting to see how um, historically these trades have changed because, um, you know, a bit over 20 years ago I was working for a fashion importer and we had a team of 10 based in Collingwood and two and a half roles were solely for the financial transactions. It was two and a half people's full-time jobs just to deal with sending money backwards and forwards from, you know, China, Hong Mm. Kong, Taiwan and what have you. And the sheer volume of time that it used to take up is extraordinary and even... um, 
in more recent times, as you were saying, in you know three years time, you know three years ago, um, you know most businesses, particularly when they're sort of mid-sized or smaller, um, the the costs, you know, paying retail, um, massive fees. You can't really use PayPal because of the huge fees that that takes. Um, it's actually really fantastic to see a platform like this to have taken such a big leap forward. It's one of those things you go, how come we weren't doing this five years ago? But it's obviously easy to, you know, see it once it's built. Well, I think it, it, it's interesting that you say that um, the whole idea of Airwallex came out of that necessity. Mm. Um, two of our founders uh, had a coffee shop in Melbourne and they were looking at the cost of paying for cups and cutlery that they were getting made in Southeast Asia and China and they just suddenly went there's got to be a better way of doing this. Now thankfully for us um, uh, one of those founders had just spent the last you know x number of years in global finance and building Mm. platforms for for FX so he knew what was available and what could be done but basically that was the genesis of this idea was a pain point sitting around coffee cups. Mm. Yeah horrible <laughs> <laughs> well the coffee's not horrible the coffee's not horrible but the, the process yeah um and and you've got something of an interest in in sort of building out good product teams and you've i guess come to airwallex because you've done it before and, and seen it before um did you have a strong point of view coming in saying if you're going to do it this way then i'm happy to join and and, and here's what i want to create Oh, I think um, coming into any organisation, uh, you bring your experience of the past. Um, however, uh, I forget where I read the statement, and maybe I made it up myself, but probably not, was that um, best practice is somebody else's solution to their own problems. So I think the worst thing you can do is coming to a situation going, um, I've got a run sheet and all I need to do is implement that run sheet and I'll be successful. Like um, industry, people, technology, all of these things are different. And if you've done it for a number of years like I have, you've got a bunch of scars and hopefully that means you make less mistakes than you would have done if you hadn't got those scars in the first place. Mm. So, and I think we're all continually learning, you know, this this industry we're in, uh, um, innovation, uh, product development, um, tech startup, is relatively new in the grand scheme of things. Mm. Um, so we're all learning from one another. You know, you just look at the industries and the, the organizations in Melbourne, how we all get together and talk. And we've all got similar problems, whether it's recruitment, whether it's um, how do you scale globally, um, investment. We all have similar problems and nobody's solved them. We've mm. just hopefully knocked off a few of the wrong ideas. <laughs> You may have noticed we were talking earlier about uh, Microsoft's push towards uh, a four-day week and, and can they be you know, productive as well. And I think um, one of the things um, from working on the show, you did ask me before how long you've been doing this show, is watching the rise of kind of hustle culture um, mm. in Melbourne and something really connected well with that, there's a lot of people who love that. And they like the idea. Yeah, it's a startup culture thing. You know, mm. I've got to work harder and, and, and so forth. Well, what's the culture like at Airwallex? How do you um, create um, your custom solution, not someone else's best practice, but your thing, but also have a good culture and um, uh, let people have a life outside of this? And I guess, like, what's the culture in your engineering department is my question. Yeah, it's it always brings me back to a phrase, which is... Um, 
entrepreneurs will work 80 hours a week so that they don't have to work for somebody else 40 hours a week, mm. um, <laughs> which makes no logical sense whatsoever. Mm. Um, yeah, it is all about hustle. Um, the, the whole point of why you join a startup is that you want to have an impact on that organization. Like you can be in a big company and potentially not turn up for six weeks and that actually makes no difference to the organization's bottom line at all. Yeah. And some of us get sick of it and we go, we want to try something new. Um, startup life is always a little bit exciting from the outside and then you get into it and you realize that um, with that ability to make decisions and have impacts comes with a responsibility to drive those impacts and to drive those outcomes. Mm -hmm. And some people will raise their game to that and other people go, that's not for me, I'm gonna go back to my old job. So I think that's probably the first thing. So the culture is based on the people that you bring in and, and, and having that hustle because in the end, it's the hustle that gets you through those early years. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know, you get your name in the press, you get these monikers, you, um, you know, we're on the KPMG, um, uh, top 100 fintechs that came out you know in the past few days all of those things are great but in the end you've got a bunch of people working really hard um, just like they were in the first day that they started the organization there's just more of us now and hopefully we've got a shared goal and a shared view on this this you know north star of making you know organizations lives easier and that's why we turn up at work every day yeah mm. well can we if, if you are on that list and if you do have that valuation of other billion dollars can you hire a few people and send some people home early like, <laughs> that's, that's that's my question i do understand what you mean like you've got to really be in it for the juice and and you know yep. you've got to really want it but can you want it until 6 p.m and then go home I, look you've got to find balance like because um not everybody, uh, you know, you can put in those, that pressure and that stress earlier on, mm. but as you start to grow, you need to widen who you're recruiting. Um, you need to bring in more people and you need to get a balance in life. Some, some days you've got to work hard to get something out the door. Other days you don't have to work so hard and you, you know, you go and pick the kids up from school. Mm. Um, in the end, we work for life outside of work normally mm. whether that's families or whatever and you know you've got to find balance but i think everybody's definition of balance is different mm. very true rowena you signed up earlier um, I did. today what, what what was your take on the on, on the ux and, and cx here what, what do you reckon yeah i i actually had a really good experience so um you? you know i i do do some <laughs> transactions overseas and they're always hideous you know swift numbers are just too darn long and it's too easy to make a mistake and you know get slammed with fees so um yeah i, I went through the process and i yeah just wanted to share that it was um was really efficient uh it was very quick um the questions were all really sensible and straightforward I really liked a lot of the integrations like your ACN lookup tool and all of that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm live and operating. I think within about four hours start to finish, I was up and going. So yeah, it was fantastic. Well, that's, that's, that's great to hear. As we know, um, it's a very complex space, international payments and international collections. And our whole goal is how can we make that simple so that a business owner can get on 
with the job that they want to do, which is running their own business. Mm. They don't want to becoming an expert in local clearing systems or what's the difference between SWIFT and ACH or what is, what's the time difference. Um, so we want to make that easier. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing all of that together in the 130 different countries in which we operate yeah. is a bit of a complex problem and something that we agonize over daily about how we make it even more <laughs> simple. Yeah. Mm. I'd love you to get into uh, local payments. That'd be great for businesses. Uh, there, uh, that's still like Zero's got some good stuff and I've been using it for a few years but there's a few things where it's just like oh my god I must have paid this person 50 times and you don't know who they are like what's mm. going on uh, to be honest we do do local payments now oh, okay. it, it's probably something Ooh. we don't shout about as much mm. because we're known for the complexity of going cross-border mm. but yes what we want to end up being is is that one place where no matter where you're collecting funds making payouts that where that that source of truth for you Hmm. Is there anything else on the roadmap that you're kind of really excited about that you can kind of hint at? Uh, Yes, so um, our cards product is what we're looking to launch um, uh, later this year and then um, going into Q1 of next year. So that's basically a debit card that is multi-currency. So you can go to any country in the world, world, pay in local currency Mm. and not have to worry about um, FX rates or conversion rates when you make that payment. Oh, that's great. Um, so, um, unfortunately, we're still only for businesses at the moment. But, yeah, we think that um, that, that capability is really going to make people's lives easier. You know, when you think about the number of payments, whether it's um, a subscription for your Slack service, whether it's a ticket, a hotel, all of these different um, jobs you have to do that right now is just a little bit too hard, a little bit too costly, we're looking to make that um, easier for organizations with our card solution. Mm, that's great. Well, we're looking forward to, uh, to following that story. And um, yeah, su- super stoked to have uh, Airwallex in, um, in Australia and, and doing well. And um, yeah, best of luck with it. Cool. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Hey, uh, there's a product out there called Google. You may have used it, you may have not. Um, apparently, it's doing some fairly shifty things with location. Um, and ACCC has taken issue with this, the Australian uh, Competition and Consumer Commission. Um, to talk about this, we're now joined on air by uh, University of New South Wales Senior Lecturer uh, at the Faculty of Law, Dr. Catherine Kemp. Uh, Dr. Kemp, thanks for joining us on the show. That's a pleasure. Good to be here. So, what is happening? We're we're um, we're using maps, or we're um, using search or email. Um, Google knows a little bit more about what we're doing than they should, perhaps. Is that is that fair to say? Well, in this case, what the ACCC is saying is that, particularly, and I should impress, this is in two thousand and seventeen and two thousand and eighteen that the ACCC said that Google was misleading consumers about its collection and use of personal location data. So the way that it was storing information about where where we go during the day, um, which in the case of mobile devices might occur while you're using particular Google apps or it might occur when you're not using those apps. Um, so what the ACCC was saying was that uh, there were certain settings that you could go on to 
uh, when you were using Google that would give consumers the impression that they could control their privacy. In particular, there was one called Location History, which uh, allowed users to go on and you could tick a box that said, don't save my location history in my Google account. Um, and by ticking that box, a lot of consumers would think, okay, done, I've protected my privacy, Google's no longer going to be storing my location data. As it turned out, um, that did not actually have the effect of stopping Google from storing your location data because you would, in order to do that, you would need to go to a separate setting called web and app activity. And there you would need to, again, uh, set the setting to don't save my web and app activity to my Google account. So the ACCC is pointing out that Google was giving people the impression that they were actually in control of their privacy in this way and that they had prevented that storage, and that wasn't the fact. And there are some other allegations about the representations that Google made in the process of those settings that didn't give consumers the full picture of what Google does with our location data. Uh, the statements there were referring to giving you better map searches and giving you better uh, search results and didn't point out that Google is actually using that location data for unrelated purposes and particularly building profiles on individual consumers uh, for use to sell them uh, targeted advertising. So how, how can we, without being, uh, without working in technology or being a lawyer, um, how can a, a person reasonably be expected to, to stay across these kind of subtle um, uh, distinctions in language and um, how can we protect ourselves from something like this? Well, I guess one of the main points that the ACCC was making in its final report following its digital platforms inquiry this year was that consumers at the moment are, are really um, at a huge disadvantage in attempting to protect themselves and understand what's going on. Uh, and the ACCC was highly critical of the way that online platforms and other major companies are framing their privacy policies, which are supposed to be telling us what's happening with our personal information if we use that service and ideally giving us some choices about whether our information is, is used for various purposes. And instead, the ACCC said, if you take a look at these privacy policies, what you tend to get is a lot of uh, comforting reassurances. You'll see that they headline with, um, we care about your privacy and we respect your right to make choices about your privacy. Um, and a lot of statements that don't create, create contractual obligations and they're not necessary for privacy notices, but they're really meant to stop us reading at that point to make us think everything looks okay here, it's all very dull, I, I, I can leave it there. Um, and in fact, the more concerning information comes much later in the policy, in the fine print, um, and generally will be just broad terms that give broad permissions to the companies to use your personal information uh, for potentially for marketing and personalised advertising to disclose to other companies to send overseas and so forth. Uh, and, and, and the really bad thing there is 
know that those are actually the things that consumers care about and want to know about if they're happening, but they're tucked away in the fine print and we're not given choices about them. So it's it's interesting. There's a um, uh, uh, in the piece that um, I guess brought this to light um, in the conversation um, about a um, deceived by design. Uh, uh, I think a um, Scandinavian um, report on some of the big platforms using dark patterns, and um, they reviewed mm. they reviewed the um, uh, privacy policies and, and practices of uh, three of the the big platforms here, and sort of suggested mm. that. They really go out of their way to um, encourage us into, um, um, I guess, agreements that are not in our best interests. Um, as a, I guess, as a, as someone who understands the law, and um, um, how do you feel about things that are technically legal but um, not necessarily ethical? And and how how can how can we be more proactive about that as as consumers? And um, I guess, but better arm ourselves for for avoiding mm-hmm. dark patterns. You're quite right. At the moment, those things are technically legal in Australia. Our privacy law is not um, up to scratch in terms of dealing with these kind of issues in the digital age. And the ACCC pointed out, for example, that we're well behind the European Union in terms of the data protection that our law provides. Um, And so it if you look at the position that consumers are in here um, as opposed to in the EU, it's possible here just to present consumers with bundled consents, which means that you mm-hmm. present them with a whole heap of purposes for which their information will be used, including providing the services that going well beyond that for the, for the commercial purposes of the company itself, and you're allowed to bundle them all up as a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Um, and so if you need to use that service, you don't get any choices in it. Uh, I think in terms of those dark patterns that you were referring to in the report by the Norwegian Consumer Council, um, for those who aren't familiar with the dark pattern concept, the, the idea is that companies are able to work out that there are certain ways of uh, creating a user interface that will make people act against their best interests. And so that might be in designing a user interface that makes um, those invasions into people's privacy not salient, that makes it feel like a social atmosphere and a private atmosphere when that's not really the case. Um, And also pre-ticking boxes in favour of more intrusive practices instead of pre-ticking boxes in favour of protecting privacy. I think while we're waiting for better privacy laws in Australia, um, it's important, especially when you know when you're dealing with some of your more sensitive information, to actually read some of those privacy policies and read further than the first page where the comforting reassurances occur and to see which boxes have been pre-ticked for you, what you need to untick um, if you are provided with some choices. At the same time, I don't think that we should be pushing this all onto the individual consumer. I think um, we've seen that the research says that if you were to read all of the privacy policies that apply to you, it would take the average consumer six working weeks in a year. So that's a physical impossibility for most working adults. And what we really need is the changes in the law that the ACCC is proposing um, so that 
these policies are framed differently to provide real information and real choice to the users. Is there a way, um, we have discussed in the past on the show, um, having um, uh, everyday language versions of these that have been shortened. Um, do we need um, pages and pages of, of documentation? And um, Yeah. I, yeah. Surely we can slim I, this I, down a bit. <laughs> yeah, and there's definitely some proposals which would be a, a lot better than the current situation. And as you say, in the current situation, you're dealing with thousands of words, you're scrolling through page after page, and in many cases, you're having to go to different pages and following hyperlinks to to um, go down a particular path and work out what exactly that purpose or that phrase means. Um, and so there are some proposals where it's been pointed out that we might be able to standardise some of these policies or, as the ACCC pointed out in its report, we might be able to create layered policies so that you have the headline statement about a, an important matter that we are disclosing your personal information to these 218 companies and if you want to see precisely who those 218 companies are you can click on that link and go through so that you you get the most important points in a summary form um, and the information that consumers are most concerned about and then you can go through to the the detail beyond that and an important aspect there is instead of leading with the, the reassurances that are made, meant to make people be lulled into a false sense of security, that instead those more disturbing practices should actually be part of the headline. If these are meant to be um, informative documents, then we should be seeing those more concerning uses right up at the front of the policy. So how, how do you uh, rate the chances of the ACCC in, in bringing this one home? I think um, it seems a reasonable case in terms of the misleading nature of the statements on, on those settings. It's certainly, if you read the settings, and they're set out in the conversation article and also in the ACCC's claim, it would give the reasonable consumer the impression that they had been able to stop the storage of their location data once they clicked that setting on location history. Uh, of course, then th there's the further question of if, if we get the kind of fines that are available um, under the Australian Consumer Law, which have been increased over the years so that it's now we're looking at maximums of $10 million for a contravention or um, up to 10% of that company's turnover in Australia. And that sounds sizable, uh, but we do know that uh, this year when the Federal Trade Commission in the United States settled on a $5 billion US dollar fine for Facebook for repeatedly misleading its users about the way third parties could access their personal data that Facebook's share price actually went up after that. So the fines themselves uh, might not have a huge impact, but I think we can take some comfort that this will have a reputational effect and hopefully wake consumers up to the fact that all's not okay with these data practices. And in that sense, you, you've, you've asked already what can we do. Another aspect of what we can do is pay attention to service providers that are offering 
privacy enhancing technology. Um, and so looking more to search engines like DuckDuckGo um, and seeing that we're offered there a privacy respecting search engine that will use contextual advertising but won't be creating this highly personal profile based on your search history and location data and tracking you across the internet in the way that Google would be. Uh, well, we'll certainly have to get you back in uh, once the uh, the result is clear. But um, Dr. Kemp, thanks for um, uh, shining a light on that and um, I, I guess um, helping us to think uh, more consciously about our decisions around, around how we use uh, services like Google. Um, thanks for your time. That's a great pleasure. Triple R. To bite into it on Triple R with Rowena and Warren. We've got just a minute left in the show uh, before Anthony Carew uh, swans in, but um, there are one or two events going on. Um, Women in STEM, what's this one about? So this is hosted by Vic ICT for Women and it's going to be a super interesting women in technology panel. They've got three female panellists who are in senior tech roles at Newcrest Mining. So we've got oh. a double header of women working in incredibly male-dominated industries. That's on at ANZ in Docklands. It's a breakfast event on Thursday the 21st of November and tickets are via Eventbrite. We'll tweet out a link to that one uh, in just a sec. Um, thank you very much for uh, hanging out with us tonight. We've enjoyed it. Um, thank you to our guests, uh, Craig and uh, also Catherine. Um, we've been bought into it. We'll be back uh, next Wednesday with uh, a different group of folks. Have a great week. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts. 